The opening illustration of this sermon feels a little different after that announcement. But it's the stuff of online memes, travel t-shirts, and vinyl stickers. And as residents of the Pacific Northwest, situated between not one but two mountain ranges, undoubtedly you have seen the quote, the mountains are calling and I must go. You seen that one? Have you seen that quote donning various stickers and whatnot? It's of course credited to the famed 19th century naturalist John Muir. And today we utter these words in celebration of outdoor recreation, right? Hiking, climbing, scaling, exploring, not to mention a whole host of winter sports. It's a call of sorts to head outdoors. So you hear that, you're called to go outside. That much we know, but what might come as a surprise to many of us here this morning is that the now famous quote is but one part of a longer sentence. In fact, the original quote wasn't about outdoor recreation at all. It was part of a letter that Muir had written to his sister, Sarah Galloway. And the original sentence reads this way. The mountains are calling, and I must go, comma. <laughs> and I will work while I can, comma, studying incessantly, period. That sounds quite different than the leisure pursuits I generally have in mind when the mountains are calling. <laughs> But for Mir, who was, in his own words, and this is from his autobiography, determined to devote the rest of his life to studying the inventions of God, the mountain's call was one of continuation in vocation, not vacation. Sometimes, I'm reminded here from a, this sort of history of this quote, sometimes in life, in modern life, we can get so focused on saying something in particular that we miss the total context that's right in front of us. We've got a message, now we've got to find a quote. <laughs> Chapter 16 of Matthew's Gospel, and it's not a, this is not a mistake here uh, for me, I know we're in 17, but Chapter 16 of Matthew's Gospel provides a case study or studies in this kind of missing what's set before someone, what's set right in front of them. The chapter begins with the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to Jesus and testing him by asking them to show them a sign from heaven. It's a curious request to be asking that sort of thing, particularly in light of the way that the preceding chapter ends. Jesus feeds 4,000 plus people with seven loaves of bread. That, of course, is joined with a number of miracles, uh, each one fitting a category that is prophesied in Isaiah chapter 35. Of course, there's an expected response. Namely, it says in the gospel, they praise the God of Israel. So they recognize where this was all coming from, and they realize the appropriate response. But that wasn't the response of these Pharisees and Sadducees. They want a sign from heaven. They clearly miss the signs that have unfolded before them. So it comes as little wonder that Jesus issues a warning then in chapter 16 to his followers to say, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees, which we'll later learn is in reference to their teaching. As rigorous their aim and persistent their pursuit to follow after the God of Israel, they couldn't see God with us when God was with them there. They couldn't see that. But if a learned group like that couldn't figure it out, if they couldn't figure it out, who could? Well, we call out to the one standing just off stage. Simon Peter, 
the great Simon Peter, who, like the other earliest Jesus followers to this point in the narrative, doesn't come across as being completely certain of who Jesus is or even what Jesus is about. In fact, commentator Leon Morris will say this about them. He says, dim perceptions of who Jesus was and what he taught. I love that. Dim perceptions. That's being generous. Rightly connects this one who doesn't get it, rightly connects the dots and articulates who Jesus is. He says in chapter 16, verse 16, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. The narrative has been pointing and leading to this all along. If you're reading through Matthew from the very beginning, it's laying out a witness to us of this very reality. It's saying everything it could possibly say to this point, 16 chapters, to get to that one moment to see someone who finally goes, bling, light bulb comes on. And we hear that Jesus is the source for this revelation. I think that's key for us to hear. We might think at first that, well, Peter's really insightful. It's really intuitive. He finally found some personal inspiration to land there. But Jesus says, it was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So again, it's not Peter being more intelligent, again, intuitive or insightful than the others. It's disclosed to him by God. I think we do well just to pause there, even though that's not our text this week. We do well to pause there and take note of this, that humility and gratitude are better responses to God's call on our lives, much better than arrogance. But just as fast as Peter shows himself to be in the know, just as quickly, he is Peter. He's just like us. He quickly demonstrates how much he doesn't know. Right? Just right when he makes the great uh, declaration here, he shows what he doesn't know. As Jesus begins in chapter 16, verse 21, again leading towards our chapter 17, to explain his coming suffering and to talk about the passion, Peter won't have it. He says, never. So he's rebuked. His, current, his concerns here are shown to be misaligned. Jesus says that in verse 23. And from this, Jesus gives a primer to him and to the disciples of the nature of what it means to be a Jesus follower. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. He goes on to note that though a cross is coming, a reward is coming as well. So let's get real for a moment. Let's stop and have a reality check here with our text. We've heard all these things leading up to chapter 17. You've committed yourself to follow this teacher, like Peter and the rest of the gang, and you've seen some pretty serious stuff in a few short years that you've been with them. But miracles with bread and miracles with bodies is all fine and good, but would you stake your life when times and trouble come, would you stake your life on those and now these, well, he said <laughs> statements, well, Jesus said this, I'm going to stake my life on that. They're not too unlike us here this morning, I'd venture to guess. They want assurances. I want to have something to hang my hat on. I just want to be sure that what's being said and, and what I've seen is actually the real stuff. Because I'm about to throw myself in with this. I'm about to be one who also denies myself and also takes up a cross. And so I want to be certain. So, and so when things turn really sideways in the coming chapters of Matthew, and they sure will, 
with the expectations rising of the disciples, but also those crowds celebrating on Palm Sunday, as tensions begin to mount, and the very real threat of arrest, mistreatment, and crucifixion is before this band of Jesus' followers and their rabbi, they are going to need more than nostalgia and spectacle to get them through that dark valley. God knows that. And Jesus, the one who is described in chapter 15, verse 32, with a very godlike characteristic, has compassion. He knows it too. And look what happens. Now, on one more, more than one occasion, I've gone out hiking. I've enjoyed venturing out on hikes. How many people like hiking? You go on day hikes? Is there other folks who like to go out? Is there anybody here who really hates that kind of thing? Is there anybody? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's outside, yeah. Faux mountains are good, but outside mountains, not so good. As much as I enjoy my time outdoors, and I'm, I'm not like a, a Daniel Boone type, right? I'm not like out there full, full tilt cutting down a trail or anything. But as much as I enjoy my time outdoors, some of these hikes can be downright exhausting. You been on one of those? You're like, where is the top of this thing? <laughs> Get away from me, fly, whatever's going on. And it, certainly that exhaustion can turn into, really quickly, it can, it can turn itself even sideways to discouragement. It becomes a real battle of mind and body while you're on the trail. I'm sure if you were to catch me on the trail during those moments, my face would be in all kinds of contortions at that. And you're like, what is that guy's deal? And it's like, what's this trail going on here? But then the trail moves to what looks to be a clearing, Right? You get a little peek out of the, the heavy uh, woods and trees, and you can, you can see some of the landscape below. You get in a small picture of what you're going to see when you get to the summit. You get a little glimpse of what's to come. And that clearing offers an opportunity not only to see that glimpse of what's to come, but also can be a place of encouragement. It can be a place that lets you know you're on the right path, that you're going somewhere. Helps to see the clearing to know that you're still going uphill. Encourages you to continue forward towards that promised destination. It's on a mountain that we have this transfiguration. And I think the transfiguration here provides a mountain clearing for those earliest Jesus followers and us here this morning. That it gives them a little peek before they go into the thick of things. Before they get to that place where it's going to be absolute struggle and wondering if they're following the right person that Jesus gives to the core leadership of his group. He says, let me give you a taste. Let me give you a glimpse of who you're following just so that you have the resources you need to go forward. And what does it see that refreshes them and renews them in this moment? Here's what they see. It says in verse 1 that after six days, Jesus takes this inner group and some of his earliest followers up the mountain. That, of course, harkens back to an earlier story, an ancient one, that back in Exodus. Exodus 24, Moses goes up the mountain taking his assistant Joshua. And the Exodus account records that they were there, surprisingly, six days. That's how we know it's keying that up. And included a cloud phenomenon and divine voice, which we also hear in our story as well. Which we understand at this point, if you read through Matthew, there's something going on with this new Moses in this new exodus. In verse 2, Jesus is transfigured with descriptions of his face shown like the sun and his clothes white as light. This, draw, this draws, of course, uh, many types of comparisons of what's going on. What does that look like? I love this poet that I read this last week, Mark Jarman, who calls this clothes flared like magnesium. 
I had to look up what that looked like on, a, on the internet. Like, and I was like, well, that is quite a description. Magnesium on fire. But here, imagery recalls uh, Exodus 24 again. Moses descends from the mountain. What? His face is aglow. He's been in the glory of God. And so there's a, there's a change. There's something about the light and the radiance in that moment has changed him. We also see in Daniel chapter 7 that who's called the Ancient of Days or the Ancient One. Their clothes are described in similar type descriptions. In Matthew 28 of the resurrection, that angel, that otherworldly being, whose clothes are also described with this type of physical descriptor. We understand this to be the description again of heavenly figures. That what they're viewing is not Jesus with a wardrobe change. That they're seeing Jesus in a way that they hadn't seen Jesus before. And isn't that what we hope for and pray as we come to the table each week? That we might know Christ. Like those earliest disciples who could see the resurrected Christ, they knew in a new way. And God's grace affords us the possibility of knowing Jesus Christ, knowing our creator in a new and unique way to actually know and be known. And so here in this story, we, we see this kind of otherworldly thing, but there's other things going on here. We used to have this kid in the youth group uh, that we were out doing projects, and this is, I give nicknames to kids all the time when I was a youth leader. People had crazy ones. We had, we had a guy, we gave him a nickname. Nobody knew his name when he got to his senior high school. They only knew him by Elgato. <laughs> that's, that's it. But we had nicknames for all these kids. But this was one my wife and, and a group of folks gave a nickname to one of the girls on the team on a mission trip. They called her Splendorous Beast. Now, I don't, I don't know how that came about, but it became a very motivating name for her. You would call her Splendorous Beast, and she'd go into, like, feats of strength and, like, incredible painting marathons. Um, but here in Jesus, we see Splendorous Radiance. And I love to see the joint of that, that here is this, this, this brightly illumined uh, figure here, something so otherworldly, but at the same time, we could follow this theme throughout Scripture and see this type of radiance shows up in Daniel 12 and Matthew 13, and in those places, it's applied to the righteous in the future. What an incredible thing to know that the transformation that they're seeing in that moment also holds for a future for us that we might be transformed as well in the presence of Jesus Christ. That is something to look forward to. And that's something that's coming. But going on here, verse 3, Moses and Elijah are seen talking with Jesus. I always, when I read this text, I always wonder, how they know it was Moses and Elijah? It's not like they had videos or pictures back then, right? They have name tags? They keep saying their first name over and over again? I just, that's a side note, so let's see. But this giver of the law, Moses, right, and this key prophetic figure, Elijah, not only represent an endorsement of Jesus by the law and the prophets, right, a.k.a. what we call the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament, they stand as witnesses to what the Father will name in verse 5 of our text. When he refers to Jesus as my son, that's the same category that Israel was called. Israel was firstborn son in Exodus chapter 4 when they're being drawn out of Egypt. And here is this one who provides this perfect Israel is standing before them. But also the one whom I love and well pleased. That's Isaiah 42 in talking about this servant, this one to come. And so you see the law and the prophets not only speaking to these categories of who Jesus is, but also serving as a ringing endorsement that this is the one that as Moses and Elijah are there with Jesus, this is who they were looking forward to from the ancient of times. And here they are in Jesus' presence. 
Both, of course, are associated with Mount Sinai. In Elijah's case, it was called Mount Horeb in 1 Kings 19. Both are eschatological figures. The fact that they would show up at this time is a marking of the ending of times. And, of course, there was traditions related to both their deaths. Uh, one being caught up and taken historically into heaven. The other one showing up in rabbinic sources as though being buried by God um, there on the mountain. Unknown grave. There's also some thinking that perhaps he also entered in. Moses entered into the heavenly presence without seeing death. They also, of course, for us as we read this and hear this, provide a hopeful vision of coming resurrection. The fact that these two long-dead ancients continue to live and speak even though they are dead, to borrow from Hebrews chapter 11. There they are. It speaks to us. The possibility of resurrection is a real possibility. So this is what they saw on that mountain clearing. These are the glimpses they saw Echoes of a familiar rescue story. Jesus for who Jesus is. The coming future. And the witness of ancients. The type who were commended for their faith. But seeing is one thing. Seeing is one thing. But responding is another. The text shows us two responses that these early Jesus followers had. You can think about what your own response would be, but here's their responses. Response number one, Peter wants to build shelters. Let's put up some tents. Let's go to Shalan and put up some tents. Now, let's get on a mountain and put up some tents. We're not sure why. No one's really sure why. I read a number of commentators this week, and there's all kinds of views of what's going on there. No one really knows why he said that. In fact, if you ask Peter, he'd probably say, I don't know why I said that either. <laughs> if you read the other gospel accounts, you'll realize that that's more true than we like to think. But what is clear is there's a mistake made here in his efforts. There is a mistake that's very clear. Namely, he relegates Jesus to the same status as both Moses and Elijah. He's going to put up equal shelters for each one of these folks. And that mistake is quickly cleared up by the divine voice who announces Jesus holding unique standing. And their response confirms their understanding of the source of that divine voice. And that's the second response. They fell on their faces out of fear, yes, but also if we follow the pattern throughout Scripture in worship of the one who was speaking. It's appropriate, but not a position that they remain in. In fact, Jesus relieves them from said position when he touched them, when he touches them. You could sit on that phrase for a whole day and just meditate on that and look at the compassion of Jesus throughout the chapters that are leading up to this. And now this great act of compassion that Jesus looks to these fearful people who've encountered the holy God and are on their faces and Jesus reaches down and touches them. What an act of incarnation to come and to touch them. We're not going to sing he touched me right now. I'm singing it in my head but I'm going to keep it at that. And he tells them to get up and not to be afraid. This is the compassion of Jesus who cares for us. This is God's compassion for us as people. Donald Hagner observes here, the Jesus of transcendent glory remains the compassionate master who led them into discipleship. The great one, the, tran the transcendent one, is also the compassionate one. And this same pattern of falling down the same pattern of being touched and being told not to fear 
is a pattern that will show up in the New Testament in another place. We actually see this in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. These three categories are the same response of John the Revelator when he encounters the resurrected Christ. So reading the situation entirely wrong, that's tense, and the same event getting it entirely correct at the same time, that's face down, these are both, of course, very human responses. Ancient and modern, these would be the similar responses. You and me would do the same thing. But the transfiguration events, uh, it invites us to even more responses than just those two. And I want to close with these four responses for us to consider as we think and remember this transfiguration. The first one is this, comes from our epistle reading in 2 Peter chapter 1. And it relates to the writer looking back to what went down on what he calls the holy mountain. So this writer is looking back to that time, this transfiguration moment. And a conclusion he draws from those spectacular events of that day are then identified in verse 19 of the 2 Peter text. He says, so we have the prophetic message more fully confirmed. Of course, there's a lot of conjecture about what's being fully confirmed here and which is which. I was reading a lot of chicken and egg kind of statements this, this week. But it would seem here that the text is pointing to what went down on that mountain makes certain the prophetic message. And what is that message? Between Messiah and who God is. And so our first response here, if we were to say of our four responses and takeaways here from the transfiguration, would be to follow the instruction of Peter here at this point. And for us, we're supposed to take the Old Testament seriously. We're supposed to take Scripture seriously, to be attentive to it because of its source. It comes from a divine source, and that was confirmed there on that mountain. The second thing is this, is not just uh, the written word itself, but also the word that became flesh. We're supposed to take Jesus seriously as well. We know that because in the transfiguration, we see that the divine voice quite literally calls us to this response. It says at the very end, after talking about uh, who Jesus is, it says, listen to him, <laughs> exclamation point, listen to him. It's not just a matter of, here's Jesus, here's who Jesus is. All right, go on with your day. But listen to him. Indeed, there's a comfort that comes in hearing the master's voice. And certainly that would be a part of listening. But even more rudimentary here is when Jesus speaks, he's speaking the words of life. He's providing words of life here. He's a sign from heaven that the Pharisees and Sadducees so wanted to see, but couldn't. He's the one who provides the eschatological meal. He is the bread that would be served not just to the 4,000 plus that he was pointing to in that miracle, but to all the world. He's the glory of God on that mountain, and he's the glory of God for us here today. And so a second response here for us that we would add to taking the scripture seriously, particularly the Old Testament, is to take Jesus seriously and to take the witness of the New Testament seriously as it speaks to that one. But there's a third one we could add here. Like I said, we have four. Have you been following the revival at Asbury University? Anybody following this? I've been watching videos of what's happening there and, and reading reports. Beginning on February 8th, if you're not familiar with this, there was a chapel service. They hold chapel three times a week on that campus at 10 a.m. That's what I've learned. Same time we held chapel when I was in school. Five days a week. 
a little bit more serious up there in Kirkland. Kirkland. But February 8th, they held chapel, and people stuck around. And people have been sticking around every day since, all around the clock, singing, praying, giving testimonies, hearing scripture. They're calling it a revival. It's happening there. People are flying in from around the world. They listed off a series of countries that people are coming from to come and be part of that revival there. Heard an interview with the student body president, and she was speaking about the challenges that face her generation. Talking about Generation Z, and she, she cited the Michigan State, the recent shooting there at Michigan State, and also the pandemic specifically, and talked about what's going to break. And her conclusion, the Holy Spirit is going to break out. And that's what she interprets is happening there on her campus, is that facing the severity of the situation in the world in which she and her peers find themselves, that they are finding a deep-seated spirituality or finding the care of the Holy Spirit in the midst of that. I don't, I don't know what you think about revivals or that type of manifestation, but I'll tell you this. Doesn't that fit the character of the God we read in the Transfiguration? That before facing the struggle, before descending down the mountain and going to that valley that would lead to death and persecution the passion that God would prepare a people by showing compassion by touching them by showing them more by providing for them a mountain clearing and I wonder if that's what's going on so a third response here would be for us to be sensitive and listen to the Holy Spirit where the Spirit might be guiding us this day but there's a fourth one there's a four one that fills out that old adage, certainly last, but certainly not least. The mountain is calling, and I must go. The mountain is calling, I must go, but to go and worship. We're not going to go worship the mountain. We'll go have fun on the mountain, but we're not going to go worship the mountain. But rather, like that psalmist, we go to the one from whom our help comes that creator of heaven and earth. And like the psalmist in Psalm 99 who writes these words, extol the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. And so friends, like those ancients of old, who in that first century experienced God's grace and compassion and mercy, but also saw God's glory and God's power on display on that mountain, We too, on this Sunday, as we prepare to head into a season of Lent, a season of preparation for coming Easter, but certainly also a season that leads to a cross, we enter into some dark valleys. We enter into some tough struggles interpersonally, but also as we look out on the landscape of the world before us in which we live, our home. And as we do, we take very seriously the witness of Scripture, old and new, We take very seriously the words of the the living word, Jesus Christ, and the movement and work of the Holy Spirit. And we gather together here on Sunday, but each and every day, lives of worship, worshiping in spirit and in truth, made possible by the living and loving God. May be so for us this day and every day of our lives. Amen.